Hello everyone, I'm Daniel Bryant and I'd like to welcome you to the Ambassador Living on the Edge podcast, the show that focuses on all things related to cloud-native platforms, creating effective developer workflows and building modern APIs. Today I'm joined by Charles Pretzer, field engineer at Buoyant, the organization behind the Linkerd service mesh. I've bumped into Charles' work several times over the last year and I was particularly interested in a recent blog post where he demonstrated the integration between Kubernetes, Knative, Ambassador and Linkerd to provide a function as a service offering. I was keen to chat to Charles and explore these topics in more detail, both from a sort of theoretical point and also from an implementation point too. If you like what you hear today, I would definitely encourage you to pop over to our website, that's getambassador.io, where we have a range of articles, white papers and videos that provide more information for engineers working in the Kubernetes and cloud space. You can also find links there to our latest releases, such as the Ambassador Edge Stack, our open source Ambassador API Gateway, and also our CNCF hosted telepresence tools too. Hello, Charles. Welcome to the show and thanks for joining me today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Could you briefly introduce yourself, please, and share perhaps a bit of a journey or a recent career highlight for me? My name is Charles Pretzer. I am a field engineer at Buoyant, which is the main sponsor for the Linkerd Service Mesh. And a recent career highlight is being able to speak and present about Linkerd and Service Mesh concepts in general at a lot of these conferences. Just working with this team, it's been great. So today I wanted to pick your brains around topics like serverless, service mesh. You and I were talking off my about Knative, Linkerd, of course. But dialing it back, just so the listeners can sort of understand perhaps your background and some of the things where you've come from, I want to talk a little bit about developer experience and sort of the inner dev loop. So could you share with me, perhaps without naming names, going to protect the innocent <laughs> and the guilty here, the worst developer experience you had from the kind of coding to testing to getting stuff into production? Uh, that's a good question. There's a actual companies that I've worked for that have had systems that are less than ideal. But I would say the one that continues to frustrate me on an ongoing basis is the one that I create for myself. So I've got side projects, personal projects that I work on, and I kind of iterate over this one process that I've been using for years. And so it, it gradually gets better. And then I'll try and out-clever myself and add some new piece of technology, some buzzword technology into it, and then things go back downhill. I think overall, the toughest part of the dev loop that I've liked the least is the one go that goes back to my consulting days or my J2EE days, I should say, working with monolithic application servers where it's like, okay, on Monday, we're going to start the QA tests and... If everything's good on Friday, we're going to deploy. And now looking back at that, it just seems like that is so insane because yeah. <laughs> you know we had things have have really gotten much tighter and much nicer. Really, such a good experience with some of the more modern workflows. I think without those older, longer, iterative processes, you wouldn't have had somebody with the creativity or a group of people with the creativity to come and say, you know what, we can make this better. We can do this better. Let's get creative and come up with something really interesting that's going to enable and empower developers to get their code out there quicker. Makes a lot of sense. You know, in this day and age, distributed systems, microservices, Kubernetes, what do you think are the good things for an inner dev loop? Yeah, well, from having done like the the developer side and also i worked at a startup many years ago where i actually used to rack and stack servers in a data center so doing a bit of the sysadmin side which evolved into devops processes i can say my developer brain wants just to write code and not mm -hmm. worry about 
it when it gets out to the server, whether it's a staging or QA or production environment, that it's going to behave the same. That there isn't something locally that I've done in my environment that is different enough that the code is going to perform differently. And what I think that boils down to, and this is kind of the, for me, what I love about the service mesh and the abstraction that it provides is I can just write my code. If I need to make an external call to Mm. a service in my development environment, it may work great, but if Mm. there's a firewall in production that prevents that from going out, that's a surprise. We don't like surprises. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> totally makes sense totally makes sense so you mentioned there like something i'm definitely keen to pick your brains on because i've enjoyed reading your articles about linkerd and using service mesh say folks are newish to the concept what would your pitch be for why they should look at service mesh sure i would say in, in a few short words service mesh is going to transparently add that observability security reliability and traffic management that ties into that that nice developer workflow that we just talked about. Let's take observability. It's the top one that we talk about for for service mesh in general, but specifically for Linkerd. If you want to get metrics out of your service, you have Mm -hmm. to instrument that service with something like maybe a Prometheus library or something that's going to write metrics out or give you an endpoint to, to collect metrics from an external service. Because the service mesh sits at that layer where it's proxying all the traffic, intercepting the traffic, it can take that away for you. So that's my pitch, write less code. What do you think the trade-offs are with a service mesh? And I'm not just picking on LinkedIn here, obviously there's many service meshes out there, but what do folks need to weigh up when they're looking, should I mesh or should I not? Oh, that's, that reminds me of the question that I get asked a lot, which is, do I need a service mesh? So mm, I, would, yes. I think they're all kind of in the same thought category. So... And I tell people, you don't, you can absolutely build this on your own if you want to. Where I have found, and this is based off of conversations with folks uh, in previous work experiences. I worked at Nginx before I was at uh, Buoyant and they would ask me, when should I implement a service mesh or when should I take Mm -hmm. on that extra effort? And for me, it's funny. I, I realized that I'm actually putting a number behind it. I say when you've got like nine to 12 services and you've got a team that at some point, the number of services that you're running is going to grow larger than the amount of cognitive load of your entire team. Mm, And at that point, the team wants to do the work that they want to do. They don't want to sit there waiting, watching, waiting for something to happen. I think that's the right time to start thinking about a service mesh. But then you have to consider mm. things like how many instances of those nine to 12 services. Mm, yep. Another thing I, I challenge people to think about is mean time to detection and mean time to resolution. And so mm-hmm, yep. with the observability and the metrics that a, a service mesh gives you, you can find problems faster. You can get them fixed yeah. faster. If you're doing live rollouts or canary deployments, testing in production, like all the cool kids are doing these days, you want to find those problems sooner rather than later. And so a service mesh enables that. Yeah, good stuff. Actually, that leads nicely onto the next topic I was uh, thinking about. 
understanding how the service mesh is performing, understand what's going on in service mesh, understanding what services are involved, what dependencies they are, like that seems super important now. And I'm guessing this is an active area of research. I know that Linkedia, are buoyant, you have Dive, a new product mm-hmm. coming out. I guess my question is, how important do you think this user experience, this developer experience is on top of the mesh? So I'm glad you brought up Dive. It is our first commercial product and it's based off of the metrics that Linkerd emits. And we're supporting other service meshes as well, which is an interesting mm, interesting. Yeah, interesting thing. Yeah. So right. every conversation that we have with folks who are in the beta program for Dive, the question that William, the question he always asks is, is this valuable to you? Is this service catalog mm. valuable to you? And that that answer is a hundred percent yes. Nobody has ever said mm-hmm. no. This is not valuable to me. <laughs> Understanding the the topology of a very complex distributed system is really important. And I'm guessing there's multiple aspects to that. There is the static snapshot of how things are all connected up. There's yeah. the runtime dynamic snapshot of how they're communicating. Yeah. Uh, I guess there's probably multiple views needed. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think those multiple views are driven by the desires of different folks in the organization, right? Mm. So the people who are on the hook to actually answer pagers these days, they're very curious to know like how much error budget is left or or when when code is rolling out. And so Dive in particular will tell you that, and that's based off of the metrics and the information that Linkerd collects. Another aspect of the service mesh, and this ties a bit into when we're using ambassadors and ingress, the security that you can get, uh, especially with Linkerd, when we're, uh, mutual TLS is enabled by default, right? And so when we inject the ambassador ingress or the ambassador gateway, with Linkerd, when that traffic is coming in, generally that is coming in, it's TLS traffic. And yep. so Ambassador can then terminate that TLS, but then Linkerd will rewrap it in its mm-hmm. own mutual TLS and pass it on to the other services inside of your cluster, that east-west traffic. And that becomes very important for some companies just by regulation. You have to have that. And other companies, I was talking with one company recently, and they don't have to have encrypted traffic in their east-west traffic, but they want it. Mm, yeah. And the interesting thing about Kubernetes is uh, you hear more and more that it's a platform for building platforms. And yeah. m- many of the conversations that we're having with folks are, well, you know, we expect to have a multi-tenant cluster. And in that case, you really want to have MTLS because we're working on that zero trust operational model, right? So yeah, the integration with Ambassador has been pretty seamless. In fact, I'm, I'm working with another customer now who's using Ambassador for their gateway, and they also want it to initiate distributed tracing spans. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that we added uh, a couple of releases ago, but I I haven't tried it yet with ambassadors. So that's the fun part of my job is I get to go and try things out. And we talked a little bit off mic about just learning and exploring and and playing with technology. And this, this is like, I get paid to play with with new technology. (laughs) And, and when it works, that user is so happy. 
yeah you know very so. cool very cool so we get asked a lot about um tls because yeah just it's almost table stakes these days particularly ingress but definitely east west we also get asked around the authorization model increasingly folks are talking about things like open policy agent opa mm-hmm. for you know can this user making this request access these services or what role and stuff? Is that something like Linkerd or service meshes will look at, do you think? In addition to the TLS, will there be things like authorization? Those are conversations that we have a lot. Today, that is not a feature of Linkerd, and that's by design. The initial design for Linkerd was user experience, getting it installed in 60 seconds. And to your point, if people are putting it into production, and they realize, you know, we're not ready for this. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's actually very easy to uninstall Linkerd as well. We don't mm-hmm. talk about that as much. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, <fair enough. laughs> yeah. But focus on user experience is really important to us. And so having something like authorization ties into some of the philosophical mm. notions of what a service mesh should and shouldn't do which is why I'm really, really excited to see that the service mesh interface project or oh, service I mesh see. interface specification has taken off. And that's how we use the service mesh interface spec to implement traffic splitting. Mm-hmm. So that then allows us to do the canary deployments. As a result of that though, uh, service mesh interface specification also has a policy. And so I suspect when we get into implementing that, it will be through something like Gatekeeper. So you have Linkerd using the service mesh interface spec and Gatekeeper following mm. the service mesh interface spec. So now you have this common language that these two open source projects are talking. And if you want to change one out later, if whatever you're changing it with is following that spec, you're in good shape. Yeah, I hear a lot about the the power of open standards. I hadn't thought too much about the SMI in, in this front of this conversation, but it's a really good topic to bring up, I think, because again, I've seen a lot of buoyant folks talk positively about SMI. Of course, many other folks are involved as well, the Istio folks, the console folks, the Ashical folks. The SMI, I think, is is a really powerful abstraction potentially to to build tools on top of. Agreed. Totally agree. And well, that's, like I said, that's why I'm personally excited about it. But I think that's the, the reason that the Linkerd team and Buoyant got involved with helping develop mm-hmm. that spec, you know. And when you look at the people who were involved with that, it was it's really impressive. Like these are technically companies that should be competitors. Yeah, yeah. They're, <laughs> they're actually getting involved and in saying, you know, let's make lives easier by simplifying things and saying, this is our standard, this is what we're gonna work off of. And from there, they can all go and run and develop what they think is the best product for it. I think that what we see is with the SMI, or the Service Mesh Interface Spec, is there's a lot of similarity between, say, traffic control east-west and at the edge. Do you know what I mean? There is a, there's a definite overlap between Service Mesh and API gateways. Some Service Meshes even support the notion of ingress, these kind of things. I wonder, as an industry, if we are coming to some end point, so to speak, where, like you say, we agree on common abstractions, we can all add value, but on top of those interchangeable standards, as you rightly said there, Charles, I think interchange is a nice word. I like that. But it sort of minimizes the risk to folks if they're trying to try things out. Yeah. Swap things out. Things like that. Yeah, for sure. No, and that's, that's the beauty of open source, right? When I first started thinking about open source and working on open source, I thought to myself, 
and it was during my consultancy days too, where I was like, why would anybody work on anything for free? <laughs> but now you actually see the human value for it. You see, oh, yeah. like I have derived value from this thing. Please let me give back to it. And so that other people may get the same value. So I, I just, I love it. And that's one of the reasons, you. yeah. One of the reasons that I, I love the Linkerd project so much. Yeah. I, I love again with, with data. Well, I love the open source, you know, policy obviously everyone's got to make money like in terms yeah. of like uh, to keep these things going forward but if we can do some good in the community if we can share our ideas and the other folks build on top of it like that's just a great that's we're super lucky aren't we to be able to work in these kind of projects totally. it's a privilege right totally yeah. well, especially coming from uh, my first job out of university was for an e-commerce application server company and we were using CVS back then. And, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. you had to have access to the repository and building. I mean, I don't even know what the build system was like back then. I think <laughs> I'm pretty sure it took hours. So that dev loop, I don't think that would have been <laughs> much fun <laughs> yes. to be a part of. Yeah. <laughs> but, been a good look. yeah. But like I said, I think that ties into the creativity aspect as well, right? Mm -hmm. So in the same way that undesirable dev loops foster creativity in building desirable dev loops. I would say open source inspires creativity. Whereas if I was just hammering away on some code, that's a private repository and it's just me architecting it and building it maybe with one or two other people, there's a good chance that we've got this group think thing happening. Yeah, but yeah. with open source, if you've got people who are coming in from different angles and somebody's who's looking at it from a, a different perspective and says, you know, this, this looks great, but what if we did it this way? And I, I just think you don't get that in, in some of the uh, closed source world. Yeah, I hear you. I think it's a danger, as you said, this sort of almost overfitting the problem, isn't there? Mm -hmm. uh, we see this a lot with some of the other tools we work on at DataWire, like Telepresence. It's easy enough to get it working on one machine, like if it's a pet project for me, but anything to do with proxies, trying to get it working on more than one machine, like a Mac versus Windows, yep. different ball game, yeah? And we like to rely on the community to test on, say, Windows, give us feedback that we wouldn't otherwise have. So yeah, yeah I'm with you. The, the, the community is just amazing. Yeah, and I'm eager to try the Telepresence uh, project for sure. Speaking of the community, I spend probably a third to half of my day in the Linkerd Slack chatting oh, with people, yeah, helping kind of shepherding them through. And, you know, it's always fun when somebody pops in there and says, hey, we met at such and such a conference. That's cool. Or, yeah, that. yeah. It's yeah, always yeah. a lot of fun. That's so, yeah, awesome. Community is really, really important to us. Very nice, very nice. I wanted to pick your brains as a sort of final biggest topic, uh, Charles, around Knative. That's how you and I met. Like I was reading yeah. your blog post around Knative, Linkerd Ambassador. Great stuff. So there's obviously quite a few options. You mentioned, I think, in your blog post, Open Faz. Like I know Alex, awesome chap. Yeah. Several other projects out there. What made you pick Knative for your blog post? It was an internal internal decision. You know, somebody said, "Hey, do you think we can get Knative running with Linkerd now that it doesn't rely on any other particular service mm -hmm. mesh?" And again, that's the fun part of my job. It's like, let's go try it. <laughs> I tell my wife, uh, she goes, "How do you think we can get this done?" I said, "Well, there's only one way to find out. You just got to try it." Yeah. And so that's the fun part of this job is we just get to try stuff. So yeah, to your point, OpenFaz and Alex, awesome project, awesome person. He's been a huge fan of Linkerd and he's done so much writing on OpenFaz yeah. and Linkerd. I almost felt yeah, guilty, yeah. felt guilty a little <laughs> bit. Like, sorry, Alex. Yeah. So the shout out to Alex, keep using OpenFaz, keep, keep up the great work. 
So the experience with Knative was, okay, let's see what we can do to make this work. And it was actually all very easy, very seamless. Mm, so again, that's a testament to the team at Knative, Knative Project, certainly the team, yeah, awesome. at, team at, uh, at DataWire working on Ambassador. And just the fact that these things are all working together mm, almost mm. seamlessly is is pretty impressive. The initial iteration of that blog post involved using a different ingress. And so we thought it would just be more fun to use different open source projects from different communities and mm -hmm. get it all working together. So yeah, that was the first time I had worked with Knative. And so that was, again, hats off to all of the teams that are working mm -hmm. really hard on those projects. Again, when I say all the teams, I mean all the teams, everybody who's contributing their time in open source. There was a tweet that went out last May in Barcelona KubeCon that somebody said, you know, open source, we need to realize we're standing on the shoulders of giants. And mm -hmm. it's true. The yep. amount of the amount yep. of heavy lifting that teams have done to make it easy for me to drop in some YAML and get this up and running in like 30 minutes is impressive. Yeah. It, it takes real time, care, and attention to make the user experience of something as flawless. So we see this, like we're kind of spoiled with our Apple phones and our, our Android phones. We're just taking it for granted now, yeah? And we almost expect the same thing with dev products, but yeah, not always the case, right? No, no. <laughs> so looking at some of the Knative stuff, do you, do you think folks are going to be running mixed workloads? So could you see like a you know Kubernetes cluster being spun up, Linkerd in the mix? Could it be some like a monolith there, say, some microservices, some serverless? Or, or do you think folks are going to, run sort of one use case per cluster? I would challenge anybody to have one use case per cluster. Yeah. Much of the work that I did when I was at Nginx was working with companies specifically to migrate a monolith to microservices. Mm -hmm. And prior to Nginx, that was a lot of the work that I'd been doing is tearing down that J2E application and building mm -hmm. it out into more of a service-oriented architecture. I wouldn't call it microservices. But I think... Always in the back of my head, I knew there was going to be hybrid architecture. Yep. And the conversations that I'm having now with folks, there are two topics that people are really interested in um, now with uh, service mesh. One is multi-cluster yep. and the other is mesh expansion. And which, so for us, we call mesh expansion being able to extend the service mesh to those to other workloads. So you have your mm -hmm. control plane in the cluster and it is managing work or it is it has meshed those services within the cluster but now you've got that old legacy system or you uh, yeah, yeah. you've you've torn down this monolith as far as it's going to go or rewritten it to as small as it can be and so you still need to get metrics and security and you need that to be part of the service mesh as well. So it's expanding the mesh to kind of wrap around it. So we internally, we call that mesh expansion. And to your point, I believe 100% we're going to see hybrid architectures and mesh expansion to me is more important than mm. multi-cluster. Well, that is very interesting. It actually leads very nicely into my final question. What do you think the future development platform developer experience is going to look like you know a lot mm. of folks i'm chatting to are saying it's all about functions maybe mm. not you know 100 functions in the end but something like that akin to lambda google functions these things what's your thoughts about the next five years say what do you think dev is going to look like in the next five years oh man i think you'll still continue to see overlap between 
developer and operations and or, you know DevOps DevOps practices. Yeah, I don't, you're asking me to make predictions. <laughs> it's always I, hard. I, don't worry. I, don't worry. I'm not judging. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to be wrong. So <laughs> no, I'm kidding. So yeah, I, I think we'll continue to see more of that melding together, but also a clear definition. And what I mean by that is people will realize there's no such thing as a DevOps engineer. There are mm-hmm. engineers who practice DevOps. Yep, you yep. Know? And so we're, I will say in the future, I think we're still going to have as many buzzwords as we do now. They're always going to be added into the into our, our conversations. But yeah, the developer experience, you know, I'm, it, I've been using IntelliJ for nearly 15, 14 years. And so, and that's because Eclipse drove me nuts, but I can see (laughs) the developer experience going fully into just an IDE. And so you're writing Mm. code and you hit save or you press a button and it just fires that code off into the ether. And next thing Mm -hmm. you know, you're testing it in production. So I think that will be seamless, but I'd like to see more standards around that in particular, right? So that way, if we have a standardized way of working within our IDEs that results in code being pushed out, it will make everybody's jobs easier. It'll make debugging things easier. So I don't know. That's a kind of a, a hot take on on like the that. future of yeah. development where I'd like to see. I, I, if, if I'm honest, you know, that's my five-year goal. In six years, I expect us to be able to think and the code <laughs> just goes out there. <laughs> I'm sure Amazon are working on that as we speak, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Every time I go sure. to reinvent, my mind is blown. So oh, I can yeah. imagine like that's that's been worked on now. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> awesome, Justin. Really enjoyed chatting to you today. Really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a great chat.